Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Fergus Borderwick, author of The First Congress. Fergus Borderwick, author of The First Congress, How James Madison, George Washington, and a Group of Extraordinary Men Invented the Government. If you were to sit in on a session of The First Congress, what would you have seen? Well, first, it would have been thrilling. Uh, the First Congress met for its first two sessions in New York City and its third session in Philadelphia. Uh, the New York sessions were the biggest tourist attraction in town. People packed into the galleries, although bear in mind that uh, visitors could only see the House of Representatives. The Senate was a closed body, doors were locked, no records were kept except for one big interesting exception. Uh, so you couldn't just wander into the Senate, you'd be thrown out. At any rate, You'd be in the visitor's gallery, you would see 59 men. That was the size of the House of Representatives in 1789 when the first Congress began. Um, t I would say towering among them politically, but um, uh, almost dwarf-like physically is James Madison, who is on the floor almost all the time. He serves as essentially the floor leader for most of the legislation in the first session. He has a whispery voice. It's very hard to hear him. He's only about five foot one, very small man, uh, very small presence. But uh, everyone looks to him as the foremost interpreter of the Constitution. Is debate um, rough and ready? Often it is. Uh, yes, uh, the, the, the founders uh, uh, are determined to get work done, uh, but uh, they, they were as rough with each other from time to time as, as members of Congress are today. Well, would it have, would the structure of the debate, the, day, the way they did things seem similar or different from what we see on C-SPAN now? Well, it would be pretty similar, pretty similar. Uh, all the members virtually were familiar with the same parliamentary procedure that uh, elected officials are today. Uh, they, they tended to follow it. <clears throat> There was one man whose almost sole job it was to see that they did so, and that is the Pennsylvanian, Frederick Muhlenberg, who was the Speaker of the House. And uh, Mr. Muhlenberg was a large man in one sense. That's to say he was as large as, as, as Madison was small. On the other hand, he rarely intervened. The Speaker's job was nothing like the Speaker's uh, job today. It's very uh, forceful position today than it was not. And indeed, the, his only real responsibility was ensuring that people followed the rules. And he also appointed members of committees, and he was very fair and judicious about that. And bear in mind, this is a very small body. As I said, it's only 59 people. Not everyone's there all the time. 
So uh, you could just about fit all those uh, uh, members onto this small stage here that we're sitting on today. Uh, so nobody got lost. Uh, nobody uh, failed to be heard, uh, except Madison, who spoke too, too softly. Uh, and so a degree of comedy and, and, and collaboration happened almost because of the, 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 the small size of the body. That's not to say it was a hug fest or, or the founders all got together and sang a 1789 version of Kumbaya. Uh, and uh, there were sharp political divisions, very deep political divisions, for example, primarily between Federalists, that uh, the, the members who uh, were, were strong supporters of the Constitution, which had been signed, ratified, that is, barely a year and a half earlier. It's brand new. It's still shiny right out of the box, so to speak. And anti-federalists, a minority in both houses, both House of Representatives and the Senate, anti-federalists who hated the Constitution. Not everybody liked it. If you were an anti-federalist and hated the Constitution, why would you have wanted to be a member of Congress? Well, your constituents wanted you to be a member of, of Congress because they wanted their voices heard. Now, the Constitution had been uh, written, then ratified, uh, and there was an upswell of popular opposition in many states. Two states, North Carolina and Rhode Island, had, had not yet ratified the Constitution and were not even present at the beginning of the first Congress and because they were governed by anti-federalists. And in fact, uh, there was talk in Congress in 1789, early 1790, of marching troops to the state line of, of Rhode Island, uh, invading the state and carrying out what we today rather delicately call regime change <laughs> in Providence uh, in order to bring them around. It didn't come quite to that. So there were Americans, many Americans, not a majority, but many Americans who uh, were very hostile to the idea of a strong central government, uh, to federal courts, uh, to a constitution which they felt uh, reposed too much power in a president. Bear in mind, there was no chief executive before this. Uh, and you can see strains of, of thinking and hostility to, to, to strong government that remain with us today. It goes right back to the founding. And some of the same arguments uh, that we hear today uh, about states' rights, for example, um, you, you hear in the first Congress. Were there regional divisions too, New England versus the South versus the Middle Atlantic states? That's a good question. Uh, because uh, we really can't think of those 13 states, now I'm including the two that hadn't yet ratified, those 13 states as a nation. They're not really a nation yet. The first Congress is, a, is part of the process of making a nation. Did they still think of themselves as 13 independent countries? Uh, many people do. Many people in them do. Some states, like Rhode Island, very much so. Uh, many Virginians do. Um, indeed, uh, Virginia, uh, led by Patrick Henry, who's quite famous, governor of Virginia, is probably the most outspoken, influential anti-federalist in the country. And he tried to prevent James Madison from being elected to anything, because Madison was a leading advocate for the Constitution and a strong national government. So uh, 
Southerners are suspicious of Northerners and Northerners are suspicious of Westerners. And when we speak of Westerners here, we're talking about just over the Appalachian Mountains, not Montana and <laughs> Wyoming. And uh, New Englanders are suspicious of just about everybody. Uh, but it varies from state to state. Um, uh, the country, such as it is, is, is very, very fragile. Uh, it's being held together primarily by, so to speak, scotch tape and bailing wire, you know. Uh, there are 50 different currencies in circulation. Um, transportation is extremely difficult. Uh, m many people, most people, probably never went outside their own, their own states. Um, Pennsylvanians, on record, describe New Englanders as foreigners. <laughs> Uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the sentiments are returned reciprocally. Um, uh, the, the west, the, the, the area west of the Appalachians is in danger of breaking off into perhaps another country or several other countries. Uh, British, uh, the British menace from the north and the, uh, the, the Spanish from the, from the west. Indian tribes are still a very significant uh, a power, I should say Indian nations, which they are at that time. Uh, along the western border, there's anxiety about war, there's tremendous anxiety that this new constitutional government won't even succeed. There's no confidence that it's, it's going to work. So how did they know what to do? How did they know what their authority was and what, their, what, what laws they had to pass? They're working it out. They're working it out as they go along. Uh, Congress is pretty much inventing itself just as George Washington is inventing the presidency. Now, when I say inventing, it's not out of nothing, but the Constitution was really pretty skimpy about what the duties of the president would be. And James Madison is working extremely hard with the support of Federalists, the Nationalists, to, to repose more power in the presidency, which is regarded as the weakest branch of government, by no means the strongest. Congress, that's to say both houses, the legislative branch, is regarded by everyone as the driving force of government. Um, uh, the Constitution has stipulated uh, certain pieces of legislation that need to be addressed. Uh, the Constitution didn't create anything. It's a plan. It's a piece of paper. It's a sketch, if you like. Uh, the first Congress created the government as we know it. It created all the institutions of government, and it did it did that through politics, through politics. And for example, what did, what did it accomplish? It um, formed the executive offices, the, the uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury. Well, that all had to be created by That Congress? all had to be created by the first Congress. It didn't, it didn't just spring magically fr from, the, from the Constitution or uh, like Athena from Zeus's forehead, <laughs> you know. It had to be created and all this was argued out. The Constitution was very unclear about what a cabinet might be, simply that there could be one. Uh, First Congress created a national court system. There wasn't any before. That includes the Supreme Court. It includes federal courts, circuit courts, and so on. Very, very vigorous debate over this because it would impinge, obviously, on the judicial powers of the states. Uh, First Congress created the first, or approved, I should say, the First Amendments to the Constitution, 
most of which we now call the Bill of Rights. They did not call it the Bill of Rights. You write about that, and this is, is not written about very often. You always hear that, oh, well, the, some of the states agreed to join if there was a Bill of Rights, but the first Congress wrote the Bill of Rights? Indeed, indeed. There were some 200 proposed amendments who proposed them. Conventions, ad hoc conventions in the various states, more than 200. And some of them were overlapping, for sure. Um, uh, James Madison, um, now James Madison in today's terms would undoubtedly be smeared as a flip-flopper by the media because Madison had initially vigorously opposed amendments of any kind because he feared that they would undermine the Constitution. It's just written, it's fragile. He, nobody has total confidence that this Constitution's going to fly. I couldn't repeat that often enough. So Madison fears that amending it now could weaken it or destroy it uh, or even legal, in a legal sense, repeal it. Okay, there's a great deal of debate about this. So Madison was against amendments until he had to run for the House of Representatives in a strong anti-federalist district in Virginia, uh, running against, by the way, future president James Monroe, an anti-federalist uh, and a protege of... Uh, king of the anti-federalists, Patrick Henry. So uh, running in a, an anti-federalist district, uh, Madison says, well, actually, he was sort of for amendments all along. He's elected. Now he's in Congress, the leading member of the House at the time. He's charged with revising the amendments, uh, combining them, and so on. And now he says, well, not so much for them after all. So he was, he was uh, against them before he was for them, <laughs> before he was against them again. But he winnowed these 200 amendments down uh, to 19. Uh, then in committee, they, they were winnowed further to 17, then, then to 12. Only 10 of those 12 would be ratified by the states. That's why the first 10 amendments are called the Bill of Rights. Um, so Madison's real goal was to weaken uh, the amendments, uh, to, to, to turn them into milk and water, essentially, so that they did no damage. He's very explicit about this in, in, his, in his letters, less so on the floor of the House. Uh, but his job is to make the amendments as toothless as possible. Uh, and nobody not one member of the first Congress celebrated the amendments as a great national achievement. Nobody was happy with them. Federalists, by and large, didn't want any because they would, might undermine the Constitution. Uh, Anti-federalists wanted ones that would uh, emphasize states' rights and, and uh, throw much more power back to the states. So they were terribly disappointed and basically just shrugged off Madison's uh, uh, amendments. In that regard, I want to sure. point out something you wrote about the Tenth Amendment, which states the powers not delegated by this Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively. There was a Thomas Tudor Tucker who wanted to insert the seemingly innocuous word expressly between not and delegated. So it would say are not expressly um, uh, are not expressly delegated by this Constitution. So what is the significance of that seemingly innocuous word? Indeed. Uh, it's hard to be succinct about it. This was a very fierce debate. 
in fact, almost every debate in the first Congress, uh, in one way or another, uh, set uh, advocates for a strong national government against states' rightists. That term wasn't used, states' rightists, then, but that's who these folks were, who anti-federalists really were. Okay, so uh, this seems like a very technical uh, linguistic debate on, on the surface. Whether or not to include the word expressly, that's to say the federal government would be allowed those powers only that were specifically written f to say federal power. Everything else would be reserved to the states. In other words, that would have been a straitjacket around the federal government. And in, in essence, it was the same principle that secessionists were, 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 were calling for by 1860, 61. And uh, indeed, uh, uh, certain political forces in the United States today insist on as well that state power should be paramount. Still okay. an issue. Still an issue today, a very hot issue. Uh, so Madison, by, by winkling out that word expressly ensured that the national government uh, would be able to be flexible and, and could uh, extrapolate powers based on the nation's need and could act for the entire country so that it would not be straitjacketed by states' rights language. How many people who were in on the founding and the Declaration of Independence or the writing of the Constitution found their way into the first Congress? Quite a few. Quite a few. Um, uh, I should say, to put this in context, that I think a lot of Americans have the, a, a romantic vision of the founders and, or members of perhaps the early Congresses uh, as, a, as, a, as a Congress of amateurs, of, of, uh, uh, as if uh, uh, farmers uh, threw down their plows and hopped on their mules and rode to New York or Philadelphia to legislate. And that was absolutely not what happened. The members, uh, almost to a man, were what we would today call professional politicians. They, they were meant. I, I want to read sure. you something uh, that you wrote about that. Uh, and this is from William McClay, Pennsylvania, William McClay's diary. A, a disillusioned William McClay confided to his diary that he had come to New York expecting every man to act the part of a god but had instead found rough and rude manners, glaring folly, and the basest selfishness apparent in almost every public <laughs> transaction. Well, okay, you've brought up William McClay. So, so let's talk about him for a minute or two. Uh, William McClay was one of Pennsylvania's two senators. The other was Robert Morris of Philadelphia. McClay is right here in Harrisburg. Um, and McClay is known for one thing, really. Uh, that's to say he was the only member of the Senate who kept a diary. And this diary's in print. It's wonderfully readable if you have some background in what was going on in Congress. Uh, he, the senators essentially drew straws to see who'd get the longer terms. McClay had got an only, only a two-year term. He only served for two years, only in the first Congress. And then after that, he came back to Pennsylvania and was a legislator in the state for years afterward. Uh, he was a hard shell uh, Scots Presbyterian. Um, he was a man of abundant opinions, most of them negative. Uh, uh, a very skilled legislator and was uh, very respected here in Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, but he did not play well with others. Um, he had uh, 
negative charisma, so to speak. <laughs> he, he was very, very rigid and judgmental, and he was terribly hostile to the idea of what he called bargaining. That's, we, today we call that compromise. Uh, he wouldn't do it. And indeed, uh, had he been uh, more flexible in that score, the nation's capital probably would have been in Pennsylvania, and we would be uh, we would be sitting either here in Harrisburg or perhaps in Columbia, Pennsylvania, uh, um, with with a grand cap national capital building down the street. Well, William McClay was when George Washington came and addressed the Senate and said, "Oh, I want these things." Was William McClay the one who stood up and said, "Well, not so fast." Uh, yes, yes, he, he helped establish a precedent uh, that lasts to the present day um, and has to do specifically with the principle of, of advice and consent, uh, which the Constitution prescribes uh, for the Senate to in, uh, advise and consent to treaties and other things as well. And this particular treaty, the first that was passed uh, by the United States, has to do with a treaty with the Creek Indian Nation, and indeed other southern tribes as well, who I should say again were viable powers in, in, in 1790, 1791. They were not on the margins at all. They were serious, let's say, security threats and so on. Uh, a treaty was, was sent to um, uh, the Senate. In fact, Washington appeared that day Assuming that the, that the senators would politely nod and say, thank you, thank you, President Washington, it's just great. And Washington could put it in his pocket and go home again. And that didn't happen. Uh, the noise was so great uh, in the Senate. Here we are in New York. This is Federal Hall, a very elegant building for its day, on Wall Street. Um, the Senate's on the second floor. That's how it came to be called the Upper House, because it was upstairs. Uh, not because it was grander. Uh, so Washington is standing here. The senators are in their semicircle of uh, desks. There are only 22 senators because North Carolina and Rhode Island have not yet become states. Um, but nobody can hear, or very few people can actually hear the treaty being read because of the traffic noise outside. We're, t we're talking about wagons and carriages with, with iron wheels on cobblestones. And the the... The, the noise of the house down below percolating up through the open windows. So um, Senator McClay uh, said, I think we need a little more time with this. Uh, reasonable enough, uh, but Washington was shocked, shocked. Uh, and he, Washington was apparently quite, quite a uh, menacing figure when he was, when he was angry. He, uh, um, lightning bolts shot out of his eyes, so to speak. Uh, but Washington, it should be said, was, uh, even though he was a patrician, a slave owner, a general used to obedience, was a Republican, a small-r Republican, to his bones. And he believed that Congress was the leading branch of the government, and he believed that the president had a, had a duty to, to defer to Congress. He hadn't expected it to be quite like this, and he didn't like it when it actually happened. Uh, now, uh, the Senate went ahead, went ahead and it approved the treaty after a while, very, pretty quickly, but Washington himself stalked off in a, in a huff, and he was reported to, to have said, I'll be damned if I'm going down there again. How did they communicate back and forth then? How did, how did they negotiate things? Who was the go-between? Uh, well, um, 
remember that, that the president, George Washington, there had never been a president before. So he's working it out as he goes along. Um, and the, the actual powers of the president were kind of murky. Okay. Um, Washington did not come into office, into the presidency, with, with, a, with an agenda. Uh, uh, he, he had no plan for his first hundred days, which is a term that we, we use habitually today, like a millstone that we hang around the neck of every president, as if he had to have, a, or she, uh, had to have a plan for the next hundred days. And that, that dates only from Franklin Roosevelt's administration. It's a new idea. Washington didn't have an agenda. Uh, he was a Federalist. He was very close to James Madison. Madison talks to him probably every day. There are no there's no documentary record of those conversations, except we know that Madison went to see him a great deal. And in Lattis Madison's personal letters, there are many, many references to having seen the president. Uh, uh, Madison is a protege of Washington. Madison wrote Washington's first inaugural address uh, in, in consultation with him, but it's really Madison's document. So Madison, some historians would say, served as Washington's prime minister. Uh, I don't agree with that terminology. Why? Because I don't think Washington is directing policy. I think in the first couple of sessions, Madison is directing policy. He, he, his, his power diminishes later on because he and Washington begin to diverge on certain issues. And Alexander Hamilton will step in and, and become closer to Washington than, than, uh, <clears throat> than Madison. Uh, so we shouldn't assume that the president is sitting up there in his rented mansion, which, by the way, stood under one of the piers of the present-day Brooklyn Bridge on Cherry Street. Uh, Washington is not calling the shots. Congress is calling the shots and being informed of what's going, uh, what's going on uh, at Federal Hall. I want to read this one sentence that, uh, about Washington. Um, you say, at his inaugural, it was obvious that the president, whose mere presence awed every American, was nearly paralyzed with anxiety. Yes. You don't picture George Washington as being paralyzed with anxiety about anything. No, no, qu quite right. Uh, Washington is an old man by the standards of his time. Uh, he's 56 and 57 years old when Congress is getting underway. Uh, he uh, had uh, uh, been away from home for many months during uh, the Revolutionary War. Uh, he had looked forward to a quiet retirement at Mount Vernon. James Madison uh, convinced him with, with some labor to come to Philadelphia to be the chairman uh, of the uh, Constitutional Convention, uh, a, a very important position, even though he almost never intervened in the debate. The presence of Washington there, Washington being uh, the only, uh, there was nobody like Washington, nobody like Washington. Every American knew Washington's name, and he was probably the only man American, whose face everybody knew because it was replicated on all sorts of tchotchkes and, uh, uh, and, and engravings and, and uh, pictures and so on. Uh, so Washington's imprimatur on the new Constitution helped sway public opinion behind it. Uh, similarly, there was really no other man who was as well fit as Washington to be the first president. Universally. 
he was supported as the first president. Um, uh, nonetheless, he was not eager, eager to serve. And there are several letters that he wrote talking about his distress at having to saddle up again and, and go into government. He was very, very concerned about his reputation. It mattered enormously to Washington. And he feared, with, with some, with some um, accuracy, that eventually, as a political man, his reputation would be diminished. He would be criticized. He would be found fault with. Uh, he instinctively knew that parties would form. I mean, he himself had, uh, was more of a political man than he's often get, given credit for. And he'd been around politics, and he'd dealt he dealt with the Continental Congress during the Revolutionary War uh, in the same way that uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower dealt with government during World War II. Eisenhower was very much a political general. Washington was also a political general. But he had managed to nonetheless protect, uh, as, if it was, as if he was in a bubble. Uh, he was almost never criticized, but he knew in politics he would be, and he didn't like the idea of it. And indeed, as his second term developed, uh, he, he, he uh, was subject to a great deal of criticism. He was no longer the uh, marble bust on a white horse that he'd been. I want to read something about getting back to um, William McClay and talking about our first vice president, John Adams. McClay probably disliked Adams more than any other man in the chamber. Uh, Adams regarded the Pennsylvanian as an uncooperative troublemaker, while McClay considered the vice president as no more dignified than a monkey just put into britches. Yes, indeed. <laughs> that, that's very typical of uh, McClay's language. Uh, I mentioned earlier that his diary uh, is the only record of deliberations in the Senate. Members were specifically directed not to keep diaries. McClay ignored that and he kept one. Why? Because he increasingly felt marginalized on the outs and he wanted to, a record for himself, since he did not try to publish it in his own lifetime, uh, a record for himself of where he had taken issue with what was happening in, in, in the Senate. Um, and he's very caustic. It's very entertaining to read well, for that reason. Where can you find it if you want to read it? Uh, it anywhere. It's, it's, it has been reprinted. Uh, there's a very, very good annotated edition you, uh, that was published by what's called the First Federal Congress Project, uh, uh, which is lodged at George Washington University in D.C. and has for years been collecting documents relating to the uh, First Congress. Uh, Go online, go to Amazon, William McClay Diary. Lots of options will come up. Uh, now, you mentioned that the con first Congress met the first two sessions in New York. Why did they meet in New York? Well, uh, during the 1780s, the Confederation Congress, think of the Articles of Confederation, uh, was nomadic. It started out here in Philadelphia and uh, eventually went to Princeton, Annapolis, and a couple of other places. And it finally just rolled up in New York with everybody sick of traveling around. New York had amenities, uh, and Congress, at least for the time being, liked being in New York. Now, we're now talking about the Confederation Congress. The problem of the Confederation Congress was that it was a huge failure, a total failure. Each state had one vote. Uh, it did not, it, it, not each congressman, okay? That was one of the great changes 
that the Constitution wrought. And it became increasingly impossible to get a quorum. And in fact, it ceased to exist. It basically ceased to exist. And the Secretary of the Confederation Congress by 1788, uh, so it was reduced to literally trying to grab members off the street and drag them into his office so that he could say, I have a quorum. But mostly he didn't succeed. Uh, so Congress wound up in New York mostly by accident. Why did it leave Philadelphia, you might ask? Uh, congressmen were terrified by what something that happened there. Um, Revolutionary War soldiers, uh, infuriated by not receiving pay, back pay, dang, back years for their service in the war, surrounded uh, the Pennsylvania State House, uh, which was also where the, the Confederation Congress was meeting. Uh, rowdy, a little, a little bit, a little bit liquored up, uh, very angry, and with weapons in their hands, and uh, were were perceived to have taken uh, uh, the Pennsylvania Assembly hostage. And members of the uh, Confederation Congress uh, were so terrified by this, they, they got out of town. They essentially ran off to New Jersey. Um, uh, and that was one reason why there was so much resistance in the first Congress to establishing the national capital in Philadelphia. There were a number of reasons, but everybody remembered that. Those Pennsylvanians, my gosh, what's going to happen to us down there? They're going to come after us with bayonets if they don't like what we're doing. Uh, it comes up, it comes up in, in, in debate. So why didn't the, the uh, Congress settle the capital in New York City? Well, there were 32 different locations proposed, ranging from upstate New York Kingston, New York, as far south as uh, Norfolk, uh, Virginia. That said, there, was a, there were only a few places that were serious candidates. New York was one of them. Uh, P Pennsylvania was another. We should talk about which places in Pennsylvania wound up competing with each other uh, for, for the national capital. And the Potomac River Valley was mentioned, but it was by no means the leading candidate. Baltimore was, was a serious contender for a while, and a few others. Now, as, now as a native New Yorker, I'm going to confess that my, 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 my bias would have been uh, uh, on behalf of placing the capital, not just in New York, but the place in New York for which it was proposed is today's South Bronx, uh, uh, a place called Morrisania. Um, it's a factory, very, very rundown factory district today, but it would have been a spectacular location. But it the odds were pretty clear that it wasn't going to go to New York. Um, uh, New York had been very recalcitrant in, 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 in uh, uh, supporting the Constitution. New York didn't even, even have members in the Senate until well, uh, uh, until the first Congress was well along. Uh, there were a lot of anti-federalists in New York. Uh, so New York didn't have the kind of clout you might imagine it had. Um, Philadelphia was the country's largest city, by far. By far, New York was, was increasing, but it, it wouldn't surpass Philadelphia for quite a while yet. And uh, uh, Pennsylvania was very politicized, very well organized politically to lobby for, for the um, seat of government, as they usually called it. Virginia was even larger as a state. It was the largest state 
in the Virginians, but the Virginians are not as well organized by any means. So uh, what's going on here? Um, possibly the bitterest debate of all in the first Congress. It wasn't over amendments. It wasn't even over Alexander Hamilton's great financial plan. Uh, it wasn't over creating a revenue stream for the national government. It wasn't over uh, um, uh, states' rights per se. It was over, over the location of the national capital. Uh, every regional prejudice came into play. Uh, there was a belief that any state that got the national capital would have a great driving engine of development, uh, that that state would dominate the national government. This was assumed to be a, a virtual fact at that time. We don't look at it that way today. But in 1789, when the states are fractious, uh, th there isn't as much of a sense of national unity. Uh, do you want a, a, a national government dominated by Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, especially with those anti-slavery Quakers. Yeah, I want to read you that. It says, Southerners feared Pennsylvania with its menacing legions of anti-slavery Quakers and free blacks. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, this is very significant, and it's mentioned a great deal in debate. Uh, uh, or do you, want, do you want the national capital down in Virginia, perhaps, deeply embedded in slave country? Uh, many, many members of Congress loathe that idea. Uh, or do you, do you want it in New York with those businessmen, Alexander Hamilton and his money men, with, with, their, with, their, with their hands around the throat of the national government? These are the kinds of uh, uh, fears and allegations that come up in debate. Uh, now, all that said, Pennsylvania basically seemed to have a lock on it. Uh, Congress voted twice uh, to put uh, the national capital on the Susquehanna River. Hadn't defined precisely the spot. It might very well have been Harrisburg or, or Columbia, a little further down the river. Uh, but it seemed like a done deal. Now, uh, why aren't we there? Uh, uh, I mean, wh why was it a done deal? Not just because the Pennsylvanians uh, were, had a had a, had a tight, tightly bound, or it seemed, delegation, but they had the support of a lot of other northern uh, votes, others, it's New York even. Uh, okay, why aren't we there? Well, thank, thank James Madison for a sort of parliamentary sleight of hand. Okay, here's what happened. I'll, 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 I'll give you the, the Reader's Digest version because it's very twisty, it's quite fascinating. Uh, where in Pennsylvania was it really going to go? Well, it appeared it was going to come to the Susquehanna River. Robert Morris, Pennsylvania's other senator, uh, a financier regarded as uh, possibly the wealthiest man in America at the time, a larger-than-life figure, quite a wonderful man, actually. His letters are terrific. He, uh, he wrote every day to his wife. They're very warm, uh, uh, chatty letters, great to read. Um, but Robert Morris was, let's say, he was an operator also he, and a champion land speculator. He bought property at every location where there was a possibility of the capital being put, everywhere. Uh, okay, as if he had you know, a bunch, bunch of extra aces under the table. Okay. Uh, Morris saw 
that it was seemed clear that the capital was going to go to Pennsylvania. He wanted in Philadelphia, where he was from and where he owned a great deal of property, not necessarily in the city. He's actually talking about Germantown. Uh, for complicated reasons, uh, there was a lot of resistance to putting the capital in the city of Philadelphia. Somewhere in the suburbs, not so bad. Okay, so he, uh, uh, Robert Morris is talking about Germantown. Uh, and Morris succeeds in, in defeating, at the last moment, defeating the um, uh, bill that would definitely put the capital on the Susquehanna. And he, he, he uh, through a series of votes, he succeeds in having Germantown put in there. People from other states don't necessarily care that much. Okay, so at the last minute, it's going to be Germantown, not the Susquehanna. Uh, James Madison says, oh, you know, there's a small detail here we ought to take care of. Um, if we're going to uh, lay out a federal district in, in Germantown, well, which laws are going to apply there? Uh, it needs to have uh, law and order. So logically, probably that should be Pennsylvania law, so we should write that in specifically, otherwise it's, there's going to be a vacuum. Seems like a reason, reasonable idea and so on. Uh, Congress votes to do so. Uh, what this means, and nobody else noticed, was that by changing that, that bill, uh, it would have to go back to the Senate for Senate approval. The Senate has already finished voting. Uh, it's the end of the session. Uh, suddenly the bill, uh, there's, the bill evaporates. It has, to be, it has to come back to Congress at the next session. And by then, everything has changed. And there is a long, even more twisty battle um, between competing offers uh, uh, that eventually winds up in the famous backroom deal, uh, first great backroom political deal in American history. Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton sit around Jefferson's dinner table. They cut a deal. Um, Madison provides very, very unhappily enough votes to enact Hamilton's great transformational financial plan for the American Treasury and uh, uh, the, laid the foundations for the system we have today. Uh, in return, Alexander Hamilton, an anti-slavery man, uh, not very happily uh, agrees to, to round up enough northern votes to ensure that the capital would go to the Potomac River Valley and Pennsylvania essentially shot itself in both feet. Well, I do want to ask you about, you write about uh, Alexander Hamilton and the debt and uh, you write that Hamilton proposed not levying heavy taxes, the conventional course of paying for the debt, but refinancing it by borrowing more money an expedient that horrified many members of Congress and other Americans who regarded debt as sin. And you, uh, Hamilton uh, thinks that debt would, in effect, become a substitute for money. How did he figure that out? Well, he read a lot of books. Hamilton was truly remarkable. Uh, it, it's, it's been uh, quite, quite uh, wonderful to see uh, his reputation skyrocket uh, as a result of this uh, musical in, in New York City, which and people may not have known a damn thing about uh, 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 Hamilton previous to that, all know about the musical. And it's been, I think, a great 
open door in, into uh, American history. And the musical saved him on the $10 bill. It did indeed, it did indeed. And, and uh, uh, well, it, it, it's, it got Harriet Tubman on a bigger denomination, all the better. Um, but uh, one, of, one of the things that really uh, struck me in my research uh, um, for this part of the book about Hamilton and the, 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 his financial proposals uh, was how few Americans understood anything about the principles of finance or economics. And somewhere in the book I quote a, a, a member of, of Congress uh, saying, uh, what is this thing called finance that Mr. Hamilton is always talking about? It's almost impossible to imagine in, a, in, in this, this dynamic uh, capitalist America that there was a time at the founding when uh, finance, investment, stockbroking, uh, uh, and, 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 and the creative use of, of debt were unknown, but it was true. So Hamilton, who is the Secretary, Secretary of the Treasury, he's not in Congress, of course, uh, is a great innovator. So how did he, largely a self-made man, although he did go to Columbia University, um, how did he get there? Uh, while everybody else was, was, was huddled in a corner over a fire at Valley Forge, Alexander Hamilton, one hopes with big mittens on, was reading financial books. Uh, he educated himself in the principles of finance. The books are British. Uh, he's very interested in the Bank of England, how it works. Uh, and he discovers that, that, that debt can be an engine for, for growth. Uh, if you pay your debt, that is. The United States in 1789 was a debtor nation. It was the Greece of its moment, uh, which is to say it was a, it was a deadbeat. Uh, the, uh, most states had failed to pay their war debts. The, the, the Confederation government had not paid its war debts. Uh, huge sums, by the standards of the time, were owed to lenders in France and, and Holland. Uh, and this was one of the most critical problems faced by the first Congress. Uh, so Hamilton's aim was, one, to get the debt paid. But he said, no, don't just pay the debt. Uh, 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 well, one, if you consolidate all the state debts with the Confederation Congress's debt uh, into a gigantic sum, it was $77 million, which is, uh, in today's money, that would be many, 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 many multiples. Okay, very serious debt. Um, you become, become a, reliable, a reliable borrower, and when the country needs to borrow money, it will have no trouble borrowing more money. Uh, and Hamilton had a, a, a rather capacious view of, of what the United States could become. He was a big government man. He wanted a strong national government. He uh, looked to the federal government as having the potential anyway to assist in uh, building infrastructure, but quite important in that they could be canals, roads, in facilitating commercial development, in short, uh, that would require investment. But the United States couldn't borrow unless it was a reliable, uh, uh, reliably paid its debts. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's in a nutshell what, it, what his plan was. It's pretty... It's a little more compli complicated than that, but that's the general idea. So how does Hamilton's desire to do that tie in with the location of the capital? 
well, uh, Hamilton's plan, this far-reaching financial plan, had a lot of opposition. It had a lot of opposition. Uh, he was literally tearing his hair. Thomas Jefferson describes him walking up Broadway in New York with his, his wig askew and his clothes unkempt and so on, pacing back and forth uh, because he, he did not have a, enough votes uh, to enact this financi financial plan. Uh, a lot of Americans were afraid of it. A lot of Americans didn't understand what he was talking about. Now I'm talking about members of Congress, not the general public. Uh, so he needed to get more votes from somewhere. And Virginia, uh, that's to say through James Madison's uh, uh, arm twisting, which is what it was, Madison offered to find enough Virginia votes, or Potomac Valley votes, somewhere Maryland votes, uh, to enact his plan, Hamilton's plan, if Hamilton uh, gave up opposing a southern capital. That's what happened. And I, I, I don't want to jump ahead and skip over the Philadelphia because the Capitol was in Philadelphia for 10 years. But when, when the area was finally selected where D.C. is now, George Washington was a big <laughs> landowner in that area. Yes, he was. Uh, this is a very interesting and not very well-known uh, 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 aspect of the establishment of the nation's capital. Okay, so the, the Potomac Valley was selected. Congress specified an area somewhere within about a hundred mile range on the Potomac River. Now Madison and uh, certain allies of Madison's had suggested very clearly that, that, that the cap capital, the place, site to be chosen, was likely to be way up the Potomac toward what they called the West. Uh, really what they're talking about is up near the narrow waist of Mar the state of Maryland. Um, somewhere in that general vicinity, maybe around Hancock, Maryland, or the long forgotten, but still there, Conococheag Creek. Um, and that was, that, that made the pill a little less bitter for nor northern members who voted for, the, for, the, for that, for a southern capital. They were, and Madison even suggested that one day as the city grew, the, 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 the uh, Cap, national capital grew, it might even spread over three states, uh, centered in Maryland, but uh, part of it in Pennsylvania, part of it in Virginia, if it went up as far as Hancock, that is. Uh, this sounded like a very national, appealing kind of national idea to some people. Uh, Congress turned over to George Washington the responsibility for selecting an actual site. Now, surprise, surprise, George Washington, as you mentioned, picks the site that is at the absolute southernmost end of, of, of the allotted area, uh, right across the river. Uh, well, uh, well, uh, the federal city at the beginning included a chunk of Virginia. It was mostly Maryland, but a chunk of Virginia, including the city of Alexandria. Uh, guess what? George Washington owned a lot of property in Alexandria, and it's just down the road from his 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 home at Mount Vernon. So they gave uh, George Washington the authority to just say, "Okay, let's put the capital right there." Well, everybody trusted Washington. Washington was a man of towering probity, but here you see George Washington playing an angle. George Washington had also been the president of something called the Potomac Company. Um, 
he was a sufferer from, along with Madison and some others, a sufferer uh, from what was called Potomac fever. That's to say a, a near religious belief that the Potomac River was destined to become the great highway into the interior of the continent to the west. And Washington himself laid out a dizzyingly complicated transportation route by, by which shipping uh, by canal boat ultimately uh, could go up the Potomac and through a series of canals and zigzag this way and that and wind up at the Ohio River. Okay, so they had a vision for the Potomac that was analogous to what the Erie Canal became for the North when it was built in the 1820s, uh, which was a tremendous engine of development for New York City and the nation's interior. That never happened with the Potomac. It was delusional. It was topographically delusional. It was politically delusional, but they believed in it. Uh, so Washington did have a larger vision here than uh, merely increasing the value of his own property, although it did increase the value of his own property, John Adams said, maybe exaggerating, maybe not, by about a thousand percent. And not only that, but in order to place the federal district, District of Columbia, where it actually is, a chunk of it is actually outside the area specified by Congress. So uh, uh, the Potomac Valley's promoters had to go back, been embarrassed, to Congress and get another bill passed extending the district so it would suit Washington's plan. We only have a few minutes left and we should probably talk about something about that when Congress was in Philadelphia. And um, the, one of the things you say is Philadelphia, the inhabitants, though appealingly plain in their speech and dress compared with New Yorkers, they were considered conceited. They believed themselves to be the first people in America as well in manners as in arts. And like Englishmen, they are at no pains to disguise their opinion, Theodore Sedgwick <laughs> wrote. Yeah, uh, well, it seems, if, if one's to take uh, Sedgwick uh, at his word, he was a congressman from uh, Massachusetts, by the way, a Federalist. If one's to take him at his word, uh, Philadelphians had some of, some of the same attitudes that New Yorkers are accused of having today. Uh, being uh, the most cosmopolitan, the most sophisticated, uh, the most intellectual, um, uh, and in some ways the most American of Americans. Uh, um, but bear in mind uh, that there were these sectional prejudices and, and resentments that, that underlie some comments like that. But uh, other, uh, others, other members are, are, are uh, unhappy with Philadelphia because uh, it's so liberal on slavery. It's so liberal on sl slavery. Slavery is really being liquidated in Pennsylvania at the time. There are lots of free blacks. The, 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 the Underground Railroad is just beginning to ignite in Philadelphia around the same time. You say, under Pennsylvania law, any out-of-state slave who remained there for more than six months automatically became free apart from those owned by members of Congress. So they exempted themselves from that law. Yes, they did. Uh, well... The, Philadelphia, of course, got the temporary capital for 10 years only until uh, the new city was, was built on, on the Potomac. I said city, but we're really talking about the Capitol building and a residence for the president and about a couple other buildings. We shouldn't imagine a real city at that early date. So Philadelphia only got a temporary capital 
Pennsylvanians acquiesced to that in the end because they were so sure that the capital, uh, once, once lodged in Pennsylvania, it would never leave no matter what the law said. Uh, and they were, many of them were very, very dismayed indeed when in 1800 the government picked itself up and left and went to the Potomac. Frankly, New Yorkers also believed that the government would never leave New York no matter what. And we're in the, 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 the process of building a mansion for the president uh, when Congress voted to take the Capitol away and the, uh, the reaction in, in, in New York, as in Philadelphia later, was just, just, just smokingly irate. What had, by the time they got to Philadelphia, what had evolved in Congress as far as how they operated? And had they made all the big decisions already? Uh, Patrick Henry, whom I mentioned earlier as a leading anti-federalist opponent of the, of, the, of the national government, said in 1791, if I have the year right, uh, well, you know, I was against it. I'm paraphrasing here. I was against it. I thought it was a bad idea. But you know, now, now, now that it's up and running, uh, we need to support the crazy machine, which is what he called it, the crazy machine of government. It was functioning. It was working. It was the same, essentially, institu the institutions of government that we know today were in existence. The first Congress achieved what it had hoped to achieve. It was one of the uh, unarguably most productive Congresses in American history despite all the fissures and anxieties and suspicions and sectional competition, it did the job. It worked. They did a very good job with it. Um, uh, all those pieces of the system w were in place. Uh, and, and one can't help but think these were really extraordinary men, not because they were different from the kinds of people who uh, come into government today, but because of what they were able to achieve. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Fergus Bordewick. He is the author of this book, The First Congress, How James Madison, George Washington, and a Group of Extraordinary Men Invented the Government. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.